We've been going through the book of Colossians. There's a group of guys that I meet with on Tuesday mornings um, at Starbucks, um, 6 o'clock. And any, any guy is invited if you want. These guys have been uh, meeting with me and helping me kind of sort out things through, throughout the, the months uh, with teaching. And one of the things that we hope to do is give, give each of these guys a little bit of experience. And when we end the book, sometimes that's a really good time to, to give everybody a chance to do that. And my desire for this message, this time that we've got today, is to review the book. I was trying to, I was trying to describe it earlier to the guys. I hope, I hope this makes sense. But like you can read a book. And you can even have a lot of, um, oh, wow, that was, that was a good point. I'm glad that, that I, um, glad I heard that. But I'm hoping to put handles on the book of Colossians so that you can, like, uh, for instance, for me, Galatians is, is that way. It's like, okay, when people are talking about legalism and, and other things, I'm like, okay, I know where to go. I know where to, to look for in that, in that book about that. There's a lot of things about legalism in Colossians as well. But this is basically uh, three guys are going to come up, and um, they're going to each cover one of the first three chapters. We covered chapter four the last two weeks, so um, we're not really going to touch that. Um, but first it's going to be Andrew, and then uh, Dane is going to come up and share chapter two, and Rob is going to share chapter three. Um, and again, there's just, Rob's going to mention, I'm, I'm tasking them to cover in ten minutes what it took me five weeks to do. <laughs> So show them grace in that. But um, I, I, we had Steve Bray shoot a video for us. He, any chance he gets to use his drone, he loves it. So can we show that video? This is kind of how we're, maybe, how we're looking at the book of Colossians. Bird's eye view. Andy, you can come on up. All right, so for those of you who weren't here last week, I normally have a beard. It's not, it's not great, but it's a beard. Um, and I decided to shave it last week. And I usually do the announcements, and I did so poorly. It must have been the lack of beard, but I, I guess I did so poorly that Doug kicked me off, and he does the announcements now. <laughs> no, but I don't feel too bad because he's not preaching, so I'm not sure what he did wrong last week that kicked him out. No, just kidding. But um, like Doug was saying, we're going to do... A bird's eye view of Colossians, which is really exciting. Um, if you think about it, this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Colossae. And, you know, Doug did a really good job this past few months breaking down the different verses and different topics. But I imagine when they received the letter, they probably read it all at once, right? You, you usually don't get a letter and you just read parts of it one week and parts the other week. So it'll be exciting to go through it all and to kind of refresh our minds and see the whole thing as a whole, as a big picture. Um, so let's get started. I'm not going to read all the verses, so you can follow along. I'll mention the verses we're going over. But in verses 1 and 2, we see, obviously, Paul's the one writing this letter, him and Timothy, and they're writing to the church of Colossae. Now, Paul has probably never been to this church before. In fact, we see that Epaphras is the one who comes to him. He's probably one of the leaders of the church at Colossae, and he's like, hey, these guys are struggling with different things, can you write a letter to them? We don't know exactly if that's what went on, but that's probably what happened. Um, and so Paul's writing this letter to help address different issues the Colossians are struggling with. And he doesn't write out the exact issues, but we can see from his letter that they've been struggling with um, false teaching of Judaism, which is um, after 
You know, you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but now you have to keep the Jewish laws and customs. Um, they also were struggling with legalism, which is, you know, you're saved through Jesus' work, but now you have to do all these good works. You have to keep the law in order to really be saved, right? They were also struggling with Gnosticism, which during this time was the teaching that you had to have, like, some secret knowledge above and beyond um, Jesus, and you were kind of part of this secret group, um, and finally, he's also addressing mysticism, which was the worship of angels or different spirits. Now, as we've already covered, Paul's solution, he's addressing these issues of Jesus plus fill in the blank, Jesus plus anything equals salvation, or Jesus plus anything equals sanctification or a complete life. And he's addressing that, and the solution is that it's Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus, only Jesus. So I'm going over chapter one. I'm going to have three reasons why it's Jesus only Jesus, and we'll end with an application. So the first one, I think it's on your notes here if you're taking notes. We see that the gospel of Jesus is enough to change us. And we see that in verses three through 12. So Doug covered, when he covered this passage, he talked about how the gospel was enough to change Saul to Paul. And he opened it up for all of us to he asked us to say out words that came to mind when we thought of Saul. And then the same with Paul. And we see this man whose life is completely changed by the gospel of Jesus. He goes from a murderer, a persecutor of the church, um, a Pharisee, to an apostle of Jesus who goes through these incredible hardships to spread the gospel. We also see specifically in verses 6 um, that the gospel is enough to change the Colossian church change them to saints. Actually, that's verse 2, sorry. And then in verse 6, we see that it's enough to change the known world. The gospel was spreading throughout the world and bearing fruit. And this reminds me of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and it says, this is Paul writing to a different church, the church at Corinth, but he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, adulterers nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. And if you think about all these churches that we read in, in the New Testament, they were filled with, quote unquote, um, the scum of the earth, with people who were the lowest of the low. And, you know, that's true of us as well. But the gospel of Jesus is enough to change us. You know, we read this list and some of these things we can, we can say, oh, I would never do that. But some of them hit pretty close to home. You know, we all have sins that we struggle with, but we're washed, we're sanctified, and we're justified solely through Jesus, only Jesus. So the next few verses we'll cover, I'm actually skipping ahead to the end of the chapter verses 24 through 29, and we see that the presence of Jesus is enough to empower us. And this is the section where Doug talked about Paul's mystery. And if you read verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And we see here that Paul's rejoicing and suffering. You know, that doesn't... That doesn't go about, that doesn't happen naturally. But Paul has a secret. Why is he able to rejoice in suffering? 
And the reason he rejoices is because he's filling up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' suffering on the cross weren't enough, right? Obviously, he paid completely for our sins. But each of us, we can, we can so to speak, be Jesus and suffer to share the gospel with others, whether that's literally suffering like Paul, physically suffering and all the things he went through, the beatings and times in prison, or just suffering through awkward conversations with your neighbors or, you know, being a light to the world. And we see that Paul's mystery, what, what was able to encourage him through all these afflictions, was Jesus. Um, in verse 29, he says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works in me. So what motivated Paul, the power that Paul had, was Jesus in him. And we have his presence in us. You know, there's nothing we need to add to our lives other than Jesus. He is the power that can empower us to live out the Christian life. Now, lastly, I'm going to cover the middle section that I skipped. Um, And I'm going to actually read these verses, if you follow along, starting in verse 13. Here, Here Paul's talking about Jesus. He said, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Paul writes out this amazing list describing Jesus, and I put some of them into my own words here. So he ta- he says, First of all, he talks about Jesus being the physical embodiment of the Almighty God. As Doug likes to say, Jesus was God with skin on. Um, He's the oldest sibling. He's the one in charge. He gets to call dibs on everything. Um, He made not only everything you see, but everything you don't see. Kings, dictators, presidents, hordes of demons, armies of angels. He rules over all of them. He was around before anything else existed. You know, he he got to call shotgun on the galaxy. Um, He got here first, just like any little kid's foolproof argument. I got here first. This was mine first. Um, Not only did he create everything for himself, but he's also the one who keeps it all from blowing apart. He's the source source and indispensable leader of the church, which is God's current program on this earth. He's the beginning. Everything traces its existence back to him. The new heaven and the new earth that are coming, the new creation, he's the firstborn. He's the firstborn of the resurrection, the new Adam. He wins first place in everything. And every drop of God's power has been placed into Jesus. Now, Paul goes into this amazing list because, again, he's refuting these doctrines that you have to add anything to Jesus. And the way he does it is by lifting up the preeminence of Jesus The preeminence of Jesus is enough to save us completely. I think I skipped that part. That's for your notes there. Um, But 
This is why Jesus and only Jesus can be our salvation, not just the way we're made right with God, but the way we live it out because only he was in the position to redeem us. You know, if you think about it, Jesus prayed in in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is that the way you say it? Gethsemane? That's a hard word for me to say. Um, But he prayed, you know, if there was any other way, let's do it that way, right? And we see that there was no other way. This is the only way to be made right with God um, because only Jesus could pay the price for sin. And I had a, a teacher in Bible school, and he used this example of Jesus being an envelope. And when we believe, when we place our faith in Jesus, we're placed into him so that we're placed into his death. Whatever happens to the envelope happens to the paper inside of it. So we're placed into his death, into his resurrection. And, and that's a good way to help me understand it. But thinking about these verses, you see that Jesus is the only envelope large enough for God to place all of creation into, place everything into in order to um, redeem it to himself. So that's why in verse 22 he says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So there's nothing additional we need to add to Jesus. Doug's example when he went over this was bank tellers. When they're looking for counterfeit money, they don't study all the counterfeits. They don't focus on those. The solution is to focus on the true, the real dollar, hundred dollar bill, whatever one you're looking at, and to know that one so well that if you see something that doesn't align with it, you can spot it out. And the same solution for us is to focus on Jesus and only Jesus, and that is the antidote to any false doctrine. So now I'm going to finish up. If you notice in your notes, I skipped one verse, and that's verse 23. So Doug asked us to pick out a key verse to the chapter, and this is the one I picked out, and it says, well, back up to verse 22 again. He says, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So here Paul is encouraging the Colossians, the church at Colossae, continue in the faith, do not be moved away from the hope of the gospel. Paul's message was for them to continue living in the faith in Jesus and the gospel that was preached to him because that is enough to make them holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Jesus plus nothing equals sanctification and equals a complete life. So Paul's solution to the needs of the Colossians and of the Calvary chaplains, I don't know how to say that, (laughs) is Jesus, only Jesus. Thank you. So next up, uh, Colossians 2. And as I began to prepare for my message this morning, uh, I naturally went back to my notes, and one of the first things I realized is Hmm, I was on vacation for a couple of these weeks. (laughs) Uh, So I had to go back to the uh, videos for that. But it was interesting, we were talking about preparing for this, uh, as as Doug mentioned, in our Tuesday morning group. And uh, Rob is coming up next in Chapter 3, and curiously enough, he was gone for two of the weeks that he was going to be teaching on. So I'm detecting a pattern here. I'm I'm not quite sure what that means yet, but... um, 
so for today's message, it's all about seeing the forest rather than all the trees. And for chapter two, I took the uh, section headings out of the New King James Version as kind of a working outline. So the first 10 verses are grouped under the heading of not philosophy, but Christ, while the remainder of the chapter uh, discusses not legalism, but Christ. Um, for this overview, I'm not going to try to retrace all of the ground that Doug covered in the three weeks he spent on this section. Uh, so if you're looking for a refresher on the finer points of the symbolism in circumcision, I'm not going to go there. Uh, I'll refer you to Doug's messages for that. Uh, but what I have been led to share with you this morning is an illustration from my personal history that backs up what Paul is teaching in these verses. Um, Doug's message explained the situational context that Paul is addressing in the letter to the Colossians, and I know that gave me kind of a, a deeper appreciation for the truth that is expounded there. Uh, but knowing that God's word is living and active, I know it also applies to our life today, and this morning I'm going to be presenting kind of a, a case study. Um, so the key verse that I've chosen for this chapter is verse 8, and I'm reading here from the NIV version. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Um, I see that Andrew covered a little bit of this part, but Doug's message also talks about the history there, and it talks about the various false teachings of the day, the Gnosticists, the mysticists, the Jewish legalism, uh, and the Judaizers. Uh, we still find variations of these kind of philosophies and teachings today, plus some, some new ones, which I might call more modern, so to speak. Um, so, so back when I was young and impressionable, as they say, I graduated from high school and I went off to college at Mankato State University, which is now called Minnesota State University, Mankato. But um, the year was 1980-81 school year, so I'm dating myself there. And I had enrolled in a pre-engineering studies program. Uh, my roommate and I were both these stereotypical nerds. One of the things I remember is sitting and watching the, the initial launch of STS-1, the Columbia uh, thing from our dorm room, and we were very excited. It, it didn't go off the first time, if you all remember that then, uh, but we kept watching and we were excited about that. So we were your typical nerds. Um, spiritually speaking, I had grown up in, in a small town as a Lutheran, and I had accepted Christ as a teenager. But my immature faith was not really prepared for the immediate road ahead of me. Uh, as it relates to this message today, I was taken captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. The uh, scholastic circles that I was striving to excel in were steeped in the scientific, secular worldview, and I began to kind of follow the mantra, when in Rome do as the Romans do. Um, I think perhaps more than anything else, something that influenced me at that time was a 13-part PBS television series called Cosmos, A Personal Voyage. It was hosted by a famous astrophysicist named Carl Sagan. Now, I'm guessing there's probably not a lot of you here who can raise hands and say, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, but long before that term was coined, I became a Carl Sagan fanboy. I bought the accompanying book, and I even had the soundtrack to the series. I mean, I was into it. <laughs> My wife is going, I never knew this. <laughs> uh, 
And I mean, to tell you how uh, unconventional that might be, the, the soundtrack is, is a collection of classical music combined with uh, synthesis, uh, an electronic synthesis guy named Van Gallus. So, very interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> kind of going off my notes a little bit here, but... <laughs> If all of this sounds really weird, you've never heard of it, I have a couple of little details in my defense. It says, as of 2009, this was still the most widely watched PBS series in the world. And the New York Times described it as a watershed moment for the science-themed television programming. So if those ideas aren't really kind of your ideas of mainstream pop culture, I concede your point. It's, I'm still a technical nerd at heart. But that is sort of my point. For me, this was the deceptive philosophy that for a time took me captive. The elemental spiritual forces of this world take different forms, and this is what attacked my spiritual vulnerabilities. So I've gone back with a little help from Wikipedia and YouTube to refresh some of my vague memories from that time to tell the story. Um, watching bits and parts of it again, it's remarkable what a difference a different perspective can make. In the, in the second episode of this series, Dr. Sagan explains the concepts of natural selection and evolution. And in it, he quotes, evolution is a fact, not a theory, he says. And he kind of goes on to give a little bit of a patronizing explanation of a competing idea of intelligent design. And just throughout the series, his atheistic worldview is implicitly presented as really the only viable option for any self-respecting intellectual. So that was kind of the environment I was in. Um, and, and I would say at the time, I swallowed his ideas hook, line, and almost all of the sinker. He was hyper-educated, he spoke with self-confidence, really engaging, and it really never occurred to me that he, his reasoning could be a house built on sand. Um, now, if you think that since this time I've become one of those science-doubting conspiracy theorists, that's not true either. I believe that science in and of itself is a useful means to understand the universe and the physical universe. But what I've come to learn, however, is that in today's culture, there's a scientific philosophy that really doesn't recognize its own limits. The mindset refuses to recognize God because he really doesn't neatly fit into their definition of reality that they've created for themselves. What was the elemental spiritual force at work here? I think the answer was simply pride. Those who are highly educated are really considered successful, and with success comes this self-sufficiency and of pride. The spiritual enemy knows how to find our weaknesses, and for me, ironically enough, that kind of came from a degree of success that I achieved in college. In high school, I had originally wanted to avoid college altogether, and it was only after considering alternatives that I, I kind of begrudgingly came to the conclusion that if I wanted to do what I, kinds of things I found interesting for a living, I probably had to go to college, so I did. Um, and somewhat to my surprise, after a little bit of initial shell shock, I found out that I could do just fine. And with that relative success, I became ever more self-sufficient and spiritually distant from what I knew as as truth and faith when I was younger. Now, the propensity for pride and self-sufficiency can also manifest itself easily as legalism, which was the second main theme in this chapter. 
those who live a life focused on following the rules have really missed the point of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. It's easy for a legalist to imagine themselves as self-righteous and compare themselves to human standards, a.k.a. grading on the curve, rather than on God's impeccable standard. In so many ways, we see the biblical truth recorded in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways, nor, nor your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In Matthew 11, Jesus is denouncing the towns of Judah that witnessed his miracles and did not yet repent when he states, starting in verse 25, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And throughout Scripture, you begin to learn just how counterculture Jesus really is to typical human thinking, whether it was the Sadducees or the Pharisees, whether it was the secular mindset or the religious rule keeper, whether it was the Democrats or the Republicans. Uh, Jesus has, uh, if you know him, he doesn't really fit into any of those categories cleanly. In a similar way, he turned Satan's game plan on its head, as described in verses 13 through 15 of this chapter. And I'll read here from the New Living Translation. You were dead because of your sins, and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Because of God's righteous judgment, we were dead because of our sins. By our own means, we have no way to earn our salvation. We all, each one of us, need Jesus, only Jesus. can't go wrong with you start a sermon with babies <laughs> or puppies uh, just a couple of housekeeping things before I start to talk about what I wanted to talk about I was so scared that I was going to screw this up if I didn't have a beard that I grew one this week as best I could <laughs> after I saw what happened to Andrew last week <laughs> Another thing I wanted to talk about is, is uh, a couple weeks ago when Doug brought this up and said, hey, I was thinking that when we got to the end of Colossians, you guys would share and, and each one of you guys could share a chapter. Uh, what do you think about that? Craig said, I think it's a great idea. Just, just, let, you know, just let us know which chapters we should do. And Doug said, well, you guys can pick, but I guess Craig, since, since uh, I think you, you initially declined, I guess you declined, but, but Doug said, well, I guess Andrew can have chapter one, and then that just leaves chapter two and three. And while I was sitting there thinking about what chapter I should do, whether it was two or three, and then remembering wives submit to your husbands was in chapter three, 
as soon as I remembered that, Dana goes, I call too. You know, so <laughs> I was like, dang. I tried so hard to miss wives submit to your husbands that I booked a cruise for my wife and I to go on so we wouldn't even be in town. And because I know how slow Doug is at preaching, I booked two Sundays on the cruise just in case. No, that's not true, actually. I mean, I did go on a cruise, but I, I just want everyone to know that just that's a joke. You know, my, my wife and I make a great team. Um, you know, I've empowered her to make a lot of decisions in our relationship regarding finances and everything, and I think we make a really good team because I let her play to her strengths. She's an accountant, and some, some guys look at me and they say, you, your wife runs all the finances? I'm like, yep, and I'm totally happy with that too. So anyway, Just so despite my best efforts to skip chapter three, here I arrive at chapter three anyway, and Doug did 300 minutes on chapter three, and I've got to sum it up in 10. So he began... Colossians chapter 3 with the fact that our relationship with God through Christ is actually a walk. One step followed by one step. And that's why I wanted to show the video because that baby's not crawling. I don't, I, I don't even know what to call that except I looked it up under scoot. The baby's scooting around. But we weren't really designed to scoot. If, if you saw like a 40-year-old guy my age moving through Walmart like that, you'd be like, oh, is something wrong with that guy? Uh, the proof of that is that Adam and Eve walked with God in the shade in the garden. So it's by design that we walk one step and then another step. And if you remember, we did first the negative and then the positive, almost always laid out in Scripture that way. Jesus says, repent and then believe. One step followed by another step. Die to sin, become alive in Christ. That's one step followed by another step. And you also must keep in mind that the people in Colossae were brand new believers. I think it's interesting that someone goes through Colossae and invites a bunch of people who were formerly worshiping the Roman gods or the Greek gods and had no connection to the one true living God. And then they hear the news that they can have a personal relationship with God through Christ and they're eager to get on board, but they're extremely dysfunctional. So someone writes a letter to Paul and says, hey, I need some help because I've got a group of new people here in Colossae and we're screwed up. So the first thing, the first two chapters that Paul talks about, he, he says, listen, okay, let's get our relationship right with Christ so you understand there's nothing but Christ. We don't have to do all these things that people might be coming up to you as a new believer and we covered some of that up here, you know. When, when I had um, David up here, I said, hey, you know, you can be Christian level one, if you remember that. But if you want to be Christian level 10, you have to fast at least twice a week. You, remember, you guys remember that? And, and nobody was buying it, which is good. And, and so that's what Paul is trying to say. Listen, your relationship to God through Christ doesn't have to do with anything added to that. So if you read verses 5, if you want to join with me in, in, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. He starts talking about some of the things that the people in Colossae need to take off before they put on other things. And he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. 
You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its old practices. These things are all relational. Paul is trying to tell the people of Colossae, who, by the way, they don't have a copy of the New Testament. It's not like they can, not like the pastor can say, listen, today we're going to be covering this. They don't really have anything to cover. This letter from Colossae, you know, maybe some of the Old Testament, that's maybe all they have. So Paul has to do a good job of summing up all the relational aspects of how these people are going to get along in just one book. So these first few verses are aimed at helping people get along with one another. I would submit in order, that in order to have true fellowship, we must be making every effort to get rid of all the things listed in verses 5 through 9. It's, it's mainly pragmatic stuff. Uh, uh, Paul is saying, listen, just don't, don't lie to each other. You know, you want to have an honest relationship. The second step after we take these things off is to put something else on. Realizing that everyone is equal when you come into a relationship with God, in verse 11 he begins, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion Kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these things put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God God the Father through him. That's the new. That's, That's the second step. Out with the old, in with the new, I think might be on your little sheet there that we passed out. So the lens finally gets tighter in verses 18 through 22. He gets specific. The church family is a broad family. If you don't have a family, the church family is a great surrogate for your family at home. One of the things I constantly talk about is the fact that I feel really sorry for people who have no family and also no church family to to supplement that family. I, I feel like it's one of my own personal missions to make sure that anybody who's alone in life realizes they don't have to do life alone, that they can actually become part of an adoptive family in Christ. But anyway, in verse 18, he gets specific with instructions to the actual family, to wives, husbands, children, fathers, and slaves. Off my paper here, I I also realized that maybe he included slaves because the family unit in that day may usually have included servants. Maybe he felt like he would write instructions to the whole family and that would include the people who lived in your house that were hired to live in your house. 
The church body is made up of families large and small, and you can't have well-functioning church, a well-functioning church family made up of dysfunctional individual units. A couple of thoughts in closing. The instructions in the Bible are ultimately for your own benefit. You were designed by God, and he knows what works best for you. I told Doug that up until this point in the study in Colossians, I've always held to the fact that if someone comes to me and says they're a new Christian and they're having trouble trying to figure out what book of the Bible they want to read first, I used to always recommend John because it talks about the love of Christ and his ministry here on earth. But because Colossians is short and succinct, I think from here forward I may recommend that new Christians read the book of Colossians first. It talks about how maybe you were dysfunctional before, but this is the way to bring everything in line. And, and if you're a new Christian, it tells you things to be on guard for that people might come up to you and try to tell you to add or subtract from your relationship to Christ. If you've already responded to the saving grace of God through Christ and are looking for what a new Christian life would look like, you need look no further than Colossians. My last thought, which comes back to the baby... At first, you can't walk. You crawl or do whatever that was. And then eventually, you learn to walk, which is putting one step in front of the other. And then eventually, you can jog or run. You should practice, it. You should practice the steps of putting off and putting on until you get better and better at it and get faster and faster at it. Hebrews 12.1 Paul writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And in 1 Corinthians, a letter that he's also writing to a new church in Corinth, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get the crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, do not run like someone running aimlessly. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time, in which case it's good to go back and look at some of the things, or you were a Christian for only a short time, the process is the same for all of us. It's a step, and then another step. Putting off, and then putting on. We call it the Christian walk. Doug is going to come back up and close us out, but uh, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, it's not magic. It's not... It's magical, um, but it's important, and... He also started pretty much all the sermons with the fact that if you don't have a relationship with Christ, most of this stuff is really not for you. The first thing you need to do is start that relationship with Christ. I'm sure he's going to come up and close us out and give us an invitation.